This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. This week, an author whose book title explains exactly what we will be talking about, A United Ireland, Why Unification is Inevitable, and How It Will Come About. Uh, Kevin Ma, welcome. Delighted to be here, Owen. Well, I think we're going to need to do some history here because Irish politics, a lot of it is about the history. So can you just take us back to the bit where your book starts in the 12th century you know, uh, and get, 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 get us back there? We, we, we won't do it year by year, don't worry. Uh, and and, um, and t- tell us what happens you know, at the beginning. Uh, get, I can give you the very, the very truncated uh, last eight hundred years of, of, of kind of British Irish <laughs> British, British Irish relations. I think I think I think in, in 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 summary, it's it's been pretty difficult. I think it would be an understatement. Um, yeah, the, the, there's a great there's a great kind of um, disconnect between I think um, the way Irish people see the history and the way British people see theirs, and particularly how British people or English people, perhaps more specifically, um, understand what's gone on in Ireland in their name. And I think that's that's an issue that, that goes all the way back to the 12th century. Lots of lots of conquests, lots of um, lots of exterminations, lots of famines, lots of wars, lots of insurrections over that period, right the way through, of course, into the latter half of the 20th century, and a, a kind of brooding stalemate that 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 pertains to this day. So so. so the Irish have a very clear sense of their history um, and spend an enormous amount of time discussing it and studying it. And I've probably slightly miffed that um, often often uh, they're, they're kind of... Uh, English interlocutors um, haven't put anything like as much effort into understanding why we are where we are, and and you know it's a very difficult history. It's a very painful history. Um, it's intertwined. Uh, these the history of these islands intertwined for a very long time. Um, Ireland, Britain's um, the, or the English state at that point's uh, original colony. Um, and everything that's gone on um, in the name of the British Empire, all the kind of misdeeds that have gone on in the names of the British Empire, have been tried and piloted in Ireland first. So, 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 so the Irish are very aware of, of all this, um, which which you know can make British Irish relations rather difficult. And in you know most of the twentieth century after. Um, after the, the the creation of the Irish Free State um, in 1922, um, pretty much onwards for the most of the 20th century, you know those relations were you know pretty uh, pretty frosty. I think is 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 probably the euphemism. They were you know they weren't good at all. Um, over the last 30, 40 years, things have improved. Certainly, at the kind of tail end of the troubles, um, into the modern into the modern day, where the British and Irish governments have acted as co guarantors. Of, of political developments in Northern Ireland. So, so things have got better and they've probably uh, waned again a little bit in the last seven or eight years um, following Brexit and, and the kind of Boris Johnson's premiership. We'll get into some all these. There's quite a lot of detail there, and we'll get into some. We'll get into all of it as as we discuss this. But let's just um, well, 
get, go back to that 12th century. Just, I guess this is the way to put it. And I think I take your point that you're saying England, not Wales and Scotland, but often English forces in Ireland would have had Welsh and Scottish components. Uh, but you know, the driving force probably was, well, certainly was England rather than Scotland and Wales. So let's accept that as shorthand straight off and, and say the, the English forces that came in uh, started basically back in the 12th century. Is that right? That's, that's the first time that there was uh, English involvement, if you like, in, in Ireland. Yes, yes. No, it, it is. And, and uh, you know, as I say, Ireland very much, um, you know, the, the, the original colony, the original kind of settlement. And, and you know, at various times um, in the intervening centuries, um, the English crown um, I suppose precursor of the British state, um, trying to, to, to you know to, to, to kind of hold Ireland against the kind of disputatious um, inhabitants um, that have been um, you know re- rebelling in one form or another pretty much um, ever since. Um, and of course, you know things get worse um, in, in you know certainly after the Reformation, um, the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland in the 1650s. Um, you know Oliver Cromwell, a statue of him outside the, the Houses of Parliament, a divisive figure in England, but of course he has a very different context in England. In Ireland, Cromwell is regarded as a butcher and an ethnic cleanser, um, and somebody that um, you know that the, that the Irish um, across the political divide, across across the kind of social divide, would regard as you know as as a butcher and an enemy of Ireland. So, so, so even though we're we're sort of shaped by some of the same characters historically, um, you know the, the Irish and and the British have very a very different take on on that history. It's still very disputed even today. So the point about Cromwell is that this was when religion came into this question. I mean, you could look at it as a straight colonial exercise, but then it became more complex with, as you say, the Reformation, the England breaking away from uh, the Catholic Church, and Cromwell, uh, Protestant uh, leader, who went to Ireland and uh, and conquered. Now, then, it's interesting you describe. That's so clearly saying that in Ireland he's regarded as a butcher and so on. And, and, and yet you'll be aware that if you go to Belfast in Northern Ireland, which is still part of Britain, there are murals celebrating uh, Cromwell uh, put up there by Protestants in Northern Ireland. There, there is. I mean, this, this is, this is again, this is the kind of tortuous history. You know, what the, 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 the Battle of the Boyne, fourteen sixteen ninety, between um, forces of King William of Orange and Catholic King James, um, a decisive, a decisive uh, battle in this conquest of Ireland, is remembered by um, Protestant Unionists. Uh, in the north of Ireland um, to this day. Uh, the Orange Order, which was established in 1790, 100 years after the after the battle, um, has been a kind of bulwark of, of muscular political Protestantism from that period onwards. I mean, even to this even to this day, the Orange Order wields enormous influence over over the Democratic Unionist Party, for example. Um, so, 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 so things that might seem to anybody looking in at this, that not particularly or or desperately um, interested in, in Irish history, will probably think this all sounds a bit weird. This all sounds like, you know, people wedded to ancient grievances. Um, what's all that about? And, and, and of course, you know, the, 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 the context is very difficult, but also very, very simple. Ultimately, um, the Irish people in various forms throughout the centuries have wanted national self-determination. Um, and that was eventually granted for 26 uh, counties of the 32 counties of the island of Ireland in, after following the War of Independence between 1918 and 1921, when effectively the British Empire was treated 
um, from from the from the vast majority of Ireland couldn't hold the country, but created Northern Ireland, six counties of Northern Ireland in, in the northeast of northeast of the country, as a backfoot compromise um, to reward the loyal um, Protestant settler um, community that, that, that were loyal to Britain and considered themselves to be British. So, so Northern Ireland's created um, in this, in, uh, you know, in, in this, in this kind of vortex of, 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 of kind of revolution um, in, in Ireland. It's done very, uh, very, very quickly. It's designed to lock in a Protestant unionist ascendancy in Northern Ireland, the, 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 the ancient Irish province of Ulster, which is often used as a shorthand for Northern Ireland, is in fact inaccurate because three of the counties of Ulster remain and have always been in the Irish Republic. So Ulster is not Northern Ireland uh, neatly. Um, the three counties that were cut off were cut off because they had a Catholic majority, um, which, which wouldn't have made Northern Ireland viable for very long. So it's, it's created as a very political, very loaded entity and is governed as one um, for the majority of the 20th century. And, and you know, we've, we've passed the, the centenary point, um, Northern Ireland centenary point in 1921. So, so, you know, in that kind of 100 years, what you had was 50 years of uh, unionist uh, majoritarian control of Northern Ireland with, with the, the lot of Catholic nationalists being not particularly uh, not a particularly happy um, experience, um, discriminated against very, very widely in terms, in terms of access to housing and jobs, um, a very big security presence, which, which, which was administered by the, uh, the Royal Ulster Constabulary and their, and their auxiliary force, the so-called B-Specials, which were you know, kind of 97, 98% Protestant. So you have one community with all the levers of, of, of the state governing the other community, which is, of course, not an ideal situation, to put it mildly. So that's what we have for the first 50 years of Northern Ireland's existence until the kind of mid-1960s, when we get the, the advent of the civil rights movement. So this is the, typically the kind of second generation of young Catholics that, that have seen their you know, their parents um, live through the kind of rampant discrimination that took place in terms of access to services and housing and jobs decided that they didn't want any more of that and were inspired very much by the American, the US civil rights movement. You know, so this is, this is protest marches and, you know, people singing, we shall overcome and, and, all, and all of that. So they're very much trying to work with the grain of Northern Ireland. They're not, you know, these, are, these are not revolutionaries. These are perfectly respectable, um, you know, Catholic nationalists who want to improve their lot. And they have very specific demands um, for reforming and improving uh, the situation in Northern Ireland. And those those demands, you know, were not met or were met very, very grudgingly and too slowly, by which point we, would, we were well into the troubles. Um, and as a result of, 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 of the Stormont regime, Stormont being the shorthand for the kind of Northern Ireland system of government, because Stormont didn't act quickly enough and because it repressed the civil rights movement so absolutely brutally, I mean, so, you know, some of the imagery of, of, of the attacks that took place on student activists in the late 60s, you know, were reminiscent of what would have happened in Selma, Alabama. So, 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 so Stormont missed an opportunity to, to sort of say, look, actually, if we want this place to succeed, we've got to improve the, the, the lot of Catholic nationalists and make, make, you know, make, it, make it habitable for them. They didn't do that. And then with events... You know, overtook them very, very quickly. So, from the you know the mid nineteen sixties to the early nineteen seventies, there was a window where you know responsible unionist leaders and the British government should have improved 
what happened in Northern Ireland. They didn't do it quickly enough. And by the early 1970s, we had we had war, basically. That's what happened. Yeah, and it was euphemistically called the Troubles in, in, in England. Now, I, I, I still just want to go back a bit, if we can, because, you know, we, 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 you're, up, you're up to sort of you know, the 1970s. But uh, after Cromwell, we had uh, a growing Protestant uh, control of Ireland, right? And you, you have a figure which basically says by the late 18th century, 5% of Irish land was owned by Catholics. So uh, th- these were these were settlers throughout Ireland who were from England, maybe some from Wales, maybe some from Scotland, who were, were holding large estates, owning them and employing the Irish on their land. Yes, ab- absolutely. What we, what we had in that period were, were, the, were the so-called penal laws, um, which... which you know, where it's kind of rampant um, legislative decrees um, against the Catholic Church and against Catholics, Catholic ownership of land, Catholic ownership of property, barring Catholics from certain public offices, barring Catholics from from the military, um, very much marginalising um, um, you know the Catholic community, banishing um, Catholic clergy from, from Ireland, closing monasteries, sacking monasteries, uh, and, and and all the rest. Of it. So there was a real you know, deliberate, forceful attempt not only to invade Ireland but to suppress um, Irish identity, Irish religious freedom, um, which which you know was was you know incredibly brutal and lasted for a very very long time. And of course, as we've seen, the, the kind of passage of, of Irish history is, you know, is is for, for every attempt at um, subjugation, there there is a counter um, attempt to 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 to. Th- you know, throw the British state uh, or the English crown out of Ireland, and that—that's that—that's that's what happens throughout this period, throughout the, you know, the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, particularly um, until until we get Catholic emancipation um, in the early part of the nineteenth of the nineteenth century, where things started to improve. Uh, but you know, those those you know, the, the, it's it's a very grim record um, for people. And I'm sitting in Sheffield in England on this side of the of the, of the Irish Sea because the things that went on, you know set the context for you know literally centuries of division and pain and bloodshed um and as i say a lot of this is, is second nature to, to, to irish people and, and and probably not to to people i think it's fair to say in, in england including the famine so t- t- tell us what happened why that happened sure. and you know what that meant for ireland with so many people leaving what, what, what yeah. tell us that story so, so there have been several famines um, in Ireland. Ireland, um, the, the, the system of agriculture um, that, that had developed with, with uh, you know, with, with um, you know, absentee landlords, absentee English landlords that had been granted um, huge tracts of, of agri- Irish agricultural land after the Cromwellian conquest. We get, we get the kind of, um, you know, what we're referred to as the planters, the planter class of loyal. English and Lowland Scots subjects that are brought across to to administer Ireland and given given you know given given huge uh, uh, chunks of land which were forfeited from from uh, from uh, you know the Irish aristocracy and and what happens is is that um, uh, these absentee landlords um, you know terrible reputation in terms of the the, the kind of husbandry of, of their land and all the rest of it very small. Um, parcels of land divided and subdivided so, so you know irish peasant farmers with very very you know meager uh, small holdings upon which to to, you know, to bring up families and, and, and all the all the rest of it so they're, they're very vulnerable 
to 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 any problems with with crops and any, any problems with with um, you know with with the weather. So what happens in in the in the eighteen forties is that there's a very particularly virile strain of of um, potato fungus that hits Ireland and you know destroys the potato crop and, and the potato is is you know the hardy perennial um plant that can be grown in in you know in bad ground in, in multiple years so this is why the irish are so so heavily dependent on it the irish peasantry um and of course what happens is that it, you know the, the 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 blight um spreads incredibly quickly washed down with the rain into into the, into the ground turns the you know the potatoes uh, putrid uh, and and people have nothing to nothing to nothing to live on now, now you might say well this is you know this is equivalent to the 20th century or 21st century of you know a famine in, in in africa and what we would do of course is try try and intervene and try and um uh, bring aid to the situation and and what the british state does is is pretty much the exact opposite of that the 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 the, the, the impulse is is weak and slow and the response is very partial um, and one of the one of the, the, the chief secretary to Ireland at the time, the the, the you know the, the leading um, the leading official um, re- leading the relief effort, um, Sir Charles Trevelyan, who in British politics is mainly remembered as as effectively the founder of the British Civil Service. Um, so he's got he's got a kind of gold star for that. But his record in Ireland, um, Trevelyan was was a was a, a Protestant fundamentalist and believed that the the, the blight was was you know was it was a sort of uh, you know, it, it, was, it was kind of um, divine retribution from God for the for the feckless Catholics, and and so so you know he did pretty much everything he could to make sure that this relief effort didn't really work, um, and and as a result of that, you get somewhere in the region of you know depending on 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 some of the accounts between you know one and one and a half million people starved to death. Uh, and, and another two million Irish had to flee the country and had, had to either to Britain or America or Australia or Canada, um, which is of course where you've got large um, Irish populations in all of those places. So, so, so you know, this is this is a pretty, you know, this is a dreadful um, natural disaster, which is which is accentuated by the fact that we've got a, a system of agriculture which leaves the peasant irish incredibly vulnerable we've got a relief effort which you know is not worthy of the name of a relief effort um and we've also got a, the fact that as, as any irish historian will be very quick to point out there was not there was not a famine in as much as everything failed um you know the, the the british land the british landowners the absentee landlords were exporting food from ireland under armed guard, usually because of the, because of the starving peasantry, across to England. So, so, so Ireland was abundant with food throughout this period, but the, but the, the peasant Irish were wholly reliant on the potato as a means of feeding themselves and, the, and their family, which, which which completely failed. So, so you, yeah. know, you you have a you have a terrible situation, and it is just you know, and and man made disaster is then heaped upon it, and that that that's what that's what drives um, so much anger. Um, I think from Irish people, uh, you know, in, in, term, in terms of what happened during those years. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
and the the impact of that is is remarkable. And I did read a statistic that it it it's only quite recently that the population recovered from that really I yes. mean, yeah, but, but both the number of people who died and those who left isn't that right and and that sort of Ireland is now had got more people than it did in 1844 but only quite recently yeah so the, the island the island of Ireland there's, there's about there's about you know the split is roughly there's, there's just shy of two million people in Northern Ireland and there's about five million people um, in, in the in the Irish Republic and, and that's pretty much what, what Ireland would have had in the 1840s yeah um, so, so I think you'd so, expect so it to be far more yeah yeah it's an extraordinary situation I think it's the only country in Europe actually that, that, that's got that kind of population uh, profile yeah so uh, that, that so we you know that's the the famine in 1844 and then you, you've told us that in 1921-22 Ireland becomes independent or yeah some of it with this uh, carve out of Northern Ireland which remained with Britain so can you tell us in let's say in 1920 just before all that happened what percentage of the population roughly would have been Protestant in 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 the bit that became Ireland you know, so the, 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 not Northern Ireland, but in, in Ireland, what percentage would be Catholic? What percentage would be Protestant? I think I think in, in, in the, the main concentrations of the, of the Protestant community would have been and still are, of course, in, in the northeast counties um, of, of, of the island of Ireland. And, and that's partly because of the, the pattern of the of the, of the Cromwellian um Plantation that Cromwell had a uh, everyone everyone's got a political slogan. Cromwell's political slogan was um, to hell or to connect, which which meant that the Irish were driven off the more arable parts, um, uh, the, the arable counties of Ireland to, to, to the west, uh, connect to the to the west of Ireland, which is much rockier and much much harder to uh, much harder to um, to farm. Um, so 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 you know that kind of pattern of, of where people where people are you know stems from that period onwards pretty much. Now now you've always you've always got people in. In the south, you've always got Protestants in the south that do very well, um, and and of course Ireland is in this in this period as it is today overwhelmingly um, Catholic in term in term in terms of its its composition, um, but but you know the, the the Protestants in the south did fared fared well through this period, and and you've got a lot of you know, a lot of leading figures, um, particularly in the Irish um, Republican um, movement at this time, and and you know the trade unions which you know, who are Protestants, and and you know a lot of people, particularly nonconformist Protestants, um, you know so, so so they would see themselves very much as, as Irish, and and the issue really is is that is that um, at that at that point when when it's clear that that Britain. Is is going to go, and and there have been, you know, the, 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 you know, this is nineteen twenty one, but there have been periods for the previous ten years or so where there have been serious conversations about Irish Home Rule. Um, there were three bills um, brought before Parliament um, from the eighteen forties onwards to, to grant Irish um, Home Rule. Um, that would have given uh, Ireland dominion status, but it would have given it very large measures of self-determination. And these were blocked um, at, ver- at various points. William Gladstone, very much an advocate of this um, during his his premierships. And of course, the final um, Home Rule Bill, the third Home Rule Bill, gets passed um, in in uh, in 1914, just at the outbreak of the First World War. So it, it's deferred because of, because of the war. And and you know the the the, the unionists, the loyalists in in what became Northern Ireland, um, you know, very keen to very keen to to, to you know to, to sort of join up with the, to the British Army because they they want to uh, they obviously want to remain British. And and you, what you get is is the exact same thing happens with lots of people from a Catholic nationalist background. They join the British Army as well. Both communities um, suffer grievously um, throughout the First World War. Actually, more more 
Irish Catholics actually served in the British Army in the First World War um, than, than also Protestants. But both both communities suffered, you know, grievous losses. And of course, what happens during the passage of the First World War is that we get um, the Easter Rising. Of, um, of 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 nineteen sixteen, where Irish Republicans and revolutionaries um, seize control of the centre of Dublin uh, and and proclaim uh, an Irish Republic. Um, yeah, but what, that, what that, I'm trying to get at is it is at that point uh, where were the Protestants in in the south in what became Ireland? So uh, were they still owning huge amounts of land? And it's interesting you say some of them basically supported Irish independence, yeah. but uh, others must you know, didn't. Uh, and yes. how, how were they dispossessed of their land? So, so yes, you, you you do still have at that point you still have a kind of an ascendancy class, um, you know the, the kind of big house Protestants that, that would would have had the you know the stately homes and what have you and the, and, the, and the and the estates uh, in Southern Ireland. Now, what happens? You know, in, in, during the Irish Revolution from kind of 18, 1918 onwards, is is that you know some of these people are forced out, um, some of them elect to leave um, because Northern Ireland is being created, um, and the population does fall, but it, it it falls it falls with 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 the kind of you know the landed gentry, if you like. Um, now, now some of these people do remain, and and some of these people, it's a mixed experience. I think that's fair to say. Some some of them were uh, mistreated clearly. Um, and some of them elected to, to leave and, and, and uh, go to Northern Ireland. So there was there was some kind of re, you know rejigging of the, of the of the populations between the between the two. Um, but the, the lot of I think the lot um, of Protestants in the South um, after after that period is considerably better and easier than it would be um, if you were a Catholic in the North. It's not it's not a, there's not a kind of a kind of an equivalence in terms of experience. It was it was very different. Um, Northern Ireland is very much created as a as a as a, as a unionist fief where where you know the Irish Republic um, was not and, and had a lot more political plurality to it. Well, it's quite, it's quite interesting to, to read because um, I was just writing something on Welsh nationalism, and, 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 and as you know, in the 1970s there was a yeah a limited campaign in the north of Wales to burn the homes of uh, England's English second homeowners, and uh, I, I thought this was a unique experience. For someone uh, said, no, no, that, that happened in in Ireland, and I looked it up, and it was true. I was surprised to learn that that some of the Protestant homes in uh, this period you're talking about, nineteen, I guess, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, something like that, were, were burnt down uh, by Irish nationalists. They were no, they, they were particularly, you know, in, in 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 the West. I mean, you've got you've got you know you've got a class of people who are seen to be, um, you know, obviously loyal to the previous uh, dispensation, um, and and that's always going to be difficult in any society that goes through effectively goes through a revolution, um, and and you know and and there is a redistribution of of of, of Political agency, um, you know, in 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 the country, and, and there's there's always going to be people on on the wrong side of that. So, so it's, these things are never going yeah. to go well. No, sure. And I don't, don't want to get too hung up on this, but the, the land that they had was that nationalised and and redistributed, or how did that work? Uh, to, yes, I mean, it's, to some measure, it was. Yes, um, you know, you've you've got it's certainly not as acute at that point as it, as it would have been because, of course, of course, you get Catholic emancipation from the eighteen thirties anyway. So some of that is starting to recede from that point anyway, um, and and there are changes where where you know to that point the, the kind of Catholic gentry and, and and you know the nascent middle class uh, were you know just systematically frozen out that ends so you, so you've got a hundred years more or less where, where that situation is is changing and evolving anyway 
Yeah. And, and so then we get to that period you've described where we ha- have um, Northern Ireland it, it, with the, the Protestants in the ascendant there and discrimination against Catholics, which uh, led to the 1960s civil rights movement and then uh, the presence of the British army originally to protect uh, Catholics, it's often said, uh, who were in Northern Ireland feeling vulnerable uh, when there were violent reactions to the civil rights movement, and, and then this this war, as you've put it, um, between basically the British state and Catholic nationalists in Northern Ireland, and that that went on for effectively twenty years or so, right? You've got yes, I mean you know the history of Northern Ireland, the centenary is is pretty straightforward. It's a fifty thirty twenty uh, century. You've got five decades of. of what might look from the outside as stability, but on the inside is, you know, as I say, rampant discrimination and misgovernance of the place and, you know, rampant corruption, frankly. Um, you've then got 30 years from the late 60s to the late 1990s of, of you know, terrible internecine violence, which, as you say, pitches... Um, you know, loyalists, which were often backed by the British state and the British state against militant Irish Republicans. Um, and, and you, you know, 3,600 people were killed. Um, you know, the place was absolutely trashed. And, and the legacy of that period lives on. And what we've had in, in the latter part, the last 20 or so years, last 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, is a kind of stop-start political process with with devolved government and and everybody trying to kind of move past that that, that period and, and and commit to exclusively peaceful means and and you know it's been it's been it's a work in progress and for 40 percent of the time you know the, the devolved northern island assembly and executive haven't even functioned and they're not functioning at the moment so 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 but you know in some respects that's instantly preferable to the previous 70 odd years of northern island's existence which were pretty pretty grim now, we're going to get on to why you think uh, United Ireland is inevitable uh, any minute now. But just before we do that, I, I wanted there's something in the book I, I didn't agree with. And I was, I was interested to get your take on it, because you, you suggested that the IRA campaign, this is the Irish nationalists who are fighting for uh, independence against the British army in Northern Ireland. Uh, you said you know, that the British state kept thinking there was a security solution to this and that this was wrong. There was no security solution to it. But it, it, it seems to me there was a security solution to it. That the, the British army, um, it took a long time, uh, but they did eventually uh, infiltrate the IRA. They did uh, manage to, you know, using things like detention without charge and all the rest of it, it was pretty brutal. Uh, but the, 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 that, that military campaign did sort of work and the IRA eventually settled without getting their demands met uh, so that you could argue the British state prevailed. I mean, it, it, what do you say to that? I mean, it, it, I mean, it's an extraordinary state of affairs. I mean, I mean, you know, w- one one quick parallel. I mean, I mean, water cannons, for example, plastic bullets, rubber bullets, which you know, which killed you know, ten children during during uh, disputes during the troubles. You know, the, the, this kind of this kind of you know this kind of weaponization of, of, of a civilian theater um, would be absolutely unconscionable in any other part of the United Kingdom. It's, water cannons have never been used anywhere apart from on the streets of Northern Ireland. It's never been used with disturbances in London or, or anywhere else. Similarly, obviously, with, with plastic bullets and bullets, it would be unconscionable. There would be no way that would ever be allowed to happen. So so, so the British state prevails, you know, in, in that sense. But at what cost does it prevail? You know, as you know, to, to go right back to the beginning, we've had 800 years of this, you know, so, so, so the British state can press down very, very hard. And it did press down very, very hard, but it came at an enormous cost 
to Britain's reputation, which is why we've seen, in, even in recent weeks, legislation passed in Westminster against the wishes of pretty much everybody in Northern Ireland and, and, the, issue, and, the, and the wishes of the Irish government um, to, to, to draw a conclusion to um, legacy investigations and potential trials. Because, because what went on in this dirty war for 30 years was, was you know, incredibly dirty and, and it came at an, an enormous cost um, you know, in terms, in terms of, in terms of, you know, the, lo- the lost lives and the lost lives of British servicemen as well, and huge, huge economic costs to, to the to the British state. To, to, to simply because, and this is partly my contention as well, that the, the, the kind of political, um, you know, statecraft, the failure of, of of British politicians over so many years to see the, the situation in Northern Ireland, how it, how it was curdling for, for such a long time, to intervene at the right time decisively to say to say actually this this is you know this is heading into a bad place but we can fix it and those warning signs were missed time and time and time again so what you get is a kind of a British underreaction to, to events um, developing in Northern Ireland and then you get a, an overreaction so so you get this militarization of, of the situation as you say the troops went in in, in 1969 under a Labour government and and they were there to principally to protect um, Catholic nationalists um, from attacks from from from, uh, from from loyalist Protestant unionist loyalist gangs and, and that you know that was very much the context in which they went in that context changed very very quickly where, where the British army was seen to be an army of occupation it was seen and it did take the side of, of the stormant regime which by which mm. by at that stage was was kind of dissolving anyway it was in the last chance saloon but the, the, the terrible mistakes were made from the period from 1970 to 1972 culminating in in bloody sunday where where, where soldiers from the the, the parachute regiment shot 27 people 27 civil rights demonstrators on a, on a cold sunday afternoon uh, 13 of whom died uh, and a fourteenth died six months later. So, so you know, th- this is this is this is the price that is paid for for, for 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 pressing down and trying to seek a military solution. You end up shooting dead thirteen civilians in front of the television cameras in the streets of Derry, which is technically, although the people of Derry may may quibble at this, technically at this point a British city. You know, this would be unconscionable if this was Nottingham. I, I do take the point, and and don't wish to diminish um, the brutality or incompetence of uh, the British presence in Northern Ireland at that time. But what about uh, the other side of it? And yeah, there was a phase of this conflict in which the IRA, the main um, uh, people fighting for against the British Army, uh, knew they couldn't win, and yet had to keep the fight going for a de- 10, 15 years or so. And in the course of that time, killed civilians who were completely innocent, uh, killed large, in some cases because they were Protestant, basically, and no, no better reason than that. Uh, I mean, th- that was part of this dirty war. They, 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 it, you know, there were other people in this war who were brutal and incompetent, and but you know, against a backdrop in which you know there, there was democratic politics available to, to some degree. So, what, what, how do you feel about? What I've just said there. There's a period where, um, throughout the 1970s, the 1980s, and until the early 1990s, um, you know, this thing just dragged on because part part of the reason it dragged on for so long is that we had a workable solution in 1973 with with the the Sunningdale Accord, which which was, you know, an attempt. 1972 was a very very 
difficult year. It was a, it was a year with the highest number of people killed in the whole of the Troubles. It, it sort of galvanised the politicians in, 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 by 1973 to say, we need to have some form of devolved working where there is, there is Catholic nationalist participation and, and there's, there's a, a recognition that there's, there's, a, there's a kind of an all-island dimension that, that, that's needed you know, to secure, you know, to, you know, to kind of secure you know, Northern Ireland um, as, as, as also part of the island of, the island of Ireland. And, and the, the Sunningdale Accord um, had great potential um, it was it was a partnership between the then Ulster Unionist Party and the Social Democratic Labour Party, um, but but Sunningdale wasn't allowed to succeed. Um, you know the loyalist um, gangs, the loyalist mobs, loyalist trade you know trade unions as well. You know called the Wildcat Strike brought the whole thing down, brought it crashing down, and what happened was that the British government didn't stand its ground and say this this is the bare minimum. That we've got to have in terms of a, a reasonable settlement to, to Northern Ireland. If this isn't allowed to work, then nothing will work. And of course, what happened then is is that every attempt, every attempt at divining a, a political solution and a political way forwards, from 1974 when Sunningdale collapses until the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, every attempt in those intervening decades came up with things which were not as good as Sunningdale. So, so, so the, Sunningdale was the bar in terms of in terms of this is the very least that Catholic nationalists I think have a right to to expect in, in any reasonable in any reasonable political settlement and everything that came forward after that point was not as good as Sunningdale so so so, so because there was no there was no political energy there was no political project that was that was viable um, what you get then is 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 endless militarism from all sides yes from from, from republicans from loyalists and from and from the british state which which has got no real sense of what to do with this place except to listen to the generals and keep pressing down harder and harder and in so doing just actually making the situation even worse and radicalizing um, um you know particularly the catholic nationalist community and 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 so, and so this lack of political imagination this lack of political agency um for for such a long period prolongs the troubles and 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 you know you know it, it, this is what you know it frustrates you know the hell out of me as as a kind of uh, you know as, as a student of these things and writing about these things and having participated in the politics of northern ireland as well is is that you know there are windows you know small windows sometimes when you just think if there was more political imagination if there was genuine commitment we might have got somewhere we might have pushed things onto a different track it might not have been perfect but it would have been better than what we got and what we had. And what we had, you know, was was three very miserable decades for everybody, uh, and including the people people in Britain as well that, that will be all too well aware of of all of this. Um, and and you know, it's and what we get in, in the Good Friday Agreement, um, as, as as you know, Seamus Mallon, the former deputy leader of the SDLP, um, you know, summed this up rather well: is that the Good Friday Agreement is Sunningdale for slow learners. Yeah, well, you're speeding forward to Tony Blair and you know, the end of this period of um, conflict between the British Army and the IRA. When and it will sort of spool through this, if you don't mind, because we're sort of running a bit out of time. But we, you know, we we got the peace process going, and there was this remarkable accommodation. Which to, to and I remember being a young reporter in Northern Ireland, we'd sit in a pub and just say there is no solution to this, and and there was a solution, and and it had lots of strands. European Union was probably part of it. Uh, the, the 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 role of the Irish and British governments in sharing some of the arrangements for Northern Ireland was part of it. Uh, probably exhaustion of the conflict. Yeah, there were lots of things going on, and it and it led to this 
current situation where there is uh, an attempt anyway at, at political resolution of these differences, but within the context of Northern Ireland still existing. And you're saying in the title of your book, you, you, you think there will be a united Ireland, which means Northern Ireland will leave Britain and become part of Ireland. So let's deal with that directly now. And, you know, the obvious uh, point is that the Protestants in Northern Ireland have been in the majority. And if there was a referendum in Northern Ireland, they would win. That's been the sort of you know, working assumption for decades. Uh, that is changing, right? And and the Protestants are, are they in a minority now or are they about to be? Well, I mean, this is this is the thing. As I say, it's created it's created very much in the image of of, of a, the Protestant Unionists. That's why six counties are cleaved out of, of to the, the nine counties of Ulster, and and for a hundred years, this is pretty much you know it's guaranteed. Uh, you know, there's more Protestants than Catholics. That changed last year in the last census, and there are now marginally more Catholics than there are Protestants. Now, you know that that's it's a shorthand for for, for saying that actually, look, you know. Most Catholics are from a nationalist or Republican um, uh, background, and most Protestants are from a Unionist or Loyalist background. Of course, there's there's a grey area in the middle, and the, and, the, and there's you know there, there's a, a growing community of people that don't really define themselves or don't wish to define themselves in those terms. But it, you know, it's instructive that we've reached that kind of inflection point where where the population has symbolically changed. Now that doesn't necessarily augur that there's going to be an, an imminent change, or that, or that, or that it, you know if there's a referendum tomorrow that it, that it would pass. But but you know, to supplement that that kind of evidence, if you like, is 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 the electoral evidence as well. We've started to see, um, for example, you know, Sinn Fein is now the largest party. Um, the political wing of the IRA is now the now the, the the largest party in the assembly. It's the largest party in local government. Um, and when you add together the cumulative um, votes, if you like, of of basically pro-UK parties and pro-United Ireland parties, what we're starting to see is, is you know, the, 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 again, a tilt. The, the, you know, in, in the local elections last year, there were more votes cast for parties and candidates that would support United Ireland than, than would obviously wish to remain in the UK. So we're starting to see, you know, some of the ramifications of these of these long-term trends starting to work their way through and starting to feed their way through. And, and you know, the, the premise of the, of the Good Friday Agreement is that there can be constitutional change, that there can be a United Ireland. In, in some respects, Northern Ireland is placed, as I put it, in an antechamber with the door closed and the only other door opens up into United Ireland, but it doesn't open up until it's likely that the majority of people in Northern Ireland would wish that to happen. Now, now, now as I say, population, electoral, electoral, electoral results are telling us something of that story but there, there are wider trends i think going on as well and and you know i mean very briefly you know the the, the specter if you like that some northern protestants would have of the irish state of, of of the role of the catholic church and and the sense of how their identity would be protected i mean that that those dynamics are changing rapidly because you know because you know younger protestants in the north don't tend to be as as you know as devout in not just their religion but their politics perhaps as their forefathers are and and southern ireland is a changed place it's a radically changed place so, so those dynamics have changed i think fundamentally and the dynamics within the british state i think are significant as well that you know Every bit of polling evidence of the British public sees, you know, the prospect of United Ireland kind of being, yep, great, fine, that's okay, we can live with that. You know, we've got Scottish independence 
you know, at that kind of 50% mark pretty much all the time at the moment. So, so it may be that the British state starts to look at these things in the next few years and say, look, we've now got two constitutional fires burning within the United Kingdom. One is Northern Ireland and one is Scotland. And it may be that there is a radical reshaping of the British state that's coming in the next 10 to 15 years anyway. But at least with Northern Ireland, this is hardwired as a guarantee as part of the Good Friday Agreement. So, so, so in a sense, it's priced in that at some stage there will be a referendum. And when there is a referendum, it is very likely that that it, that, that it will pass and that, and that um, there will be a vote by the people of Northern Ireland to join with the rest of Ireland. And just to break that down, just so everyone's clear about it, you, you're saying that, let's say, 50 years ago in Northern Ireland, if you're a Catholic, but yeah, with a very high degree of probability, you'd want an independent United Ireland. If you were Protestant, you'd want to stay part of the UK. That's breaking down a bit because there are people in the middle, you've mentioned, who are you know less sectarian than they used to be. But there's also another thing going on where some Protestants, uh, and I'm told this is particularly true of successful Protestants in the North, are thinking that Ireland is in the European Union. It may be better for them to to go along with the United Ireland, even though they won't be totally happy about it, but it may be economically better for them. So there there are various sort of uh, trends which lead you know to your conclusion that if there was a referendum in the next 10 15 years and and this is a new situation because it wasn't the case 10 years ago let's say but if if you know that it is likely there would be a vote for a united ireland that's what you're saying very much so. And I think I think what, what you get is, you know, there is not an expectation that people have got to wrap the green flag around them. And, and, and it's, it's a pragmatic decision for a lot of people. It's, it's not a question necessarily of what do you want? It's sometimes a question in politics of what can you live with? And, and I think there are a lot of people from a Protestant unionist background that, that carry their politics fairly lightly and just see, see so many opportunities. You know, Ireland, one of the fastest growing, you know, small countries in the world with one of the highest living standards. It's got its own economic problems, but, but the, the good problems are the problems that you gen- that are generated from an overheating economy that would benefit massively from taking on taking in two million people that live on its landmass. Um, you know, so, so, so there's great opportunities there, and I think I think a pragmatic calculation will be made by an increasing number of people that might have come from a Protestant unionist background, and and, and that actually that yeah. will help to tip the balance. However. Uh, having worked in Northern Ireland, and you're very you know, much more familiar with it than me, you know as well as I do that there will be Protestants in the Northern Ireland who will resist that outcome with violence. It is inevitable. Dublin, the, the capital of the of independent Ireland, would be taking on uh, a situation where there would be an insurgency of some kind. I mean, you know, who knows to what degree uh, on its soil? Something it's it's not at all used to. And in Northern Ireland, there would be, uh, you know, sectarian violence. That is, if if the Protestants fought, let's face it, some Catholics will fight back. Uh, so that is part of this prospect, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's very interesting. There was there was there was some academic research just before Christmas asking these kinds of questions, trying to tease out um, what the implications might be if 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 people if 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 you if you try and um, determine what I think academics call losers' consent, which which is the idea that the people on the wrong side, if you like, inverted commas of a referendum, what 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 do they do? How do they react? How do they acclimatise themselves to this? And there, there are some there are some noises off. Clearly, we've got loyalist paramilitary groupings which are still organizing in, in Northern Ireland, which is you know, a, a minor scandal in itself. And, and, and some of these people will mutter darkly about, about, about what they might do in, in the advent of United Ireland. But there are others, there are other people within loyalism that would say, look, if there is a, a properly constituted referendum and 
we're on the wrong side of it, then we have to we have to we have to live with that because because we can't go back to what we had, and and you know the, the British state will you know that we that we perceive ourselves to be loyal to will be the will be the the institution Westminster with institution that, that actually brings this referendum into being in the first place. So who are we angry with? You know, is is part of the equation. So yes, there there are some noises off. There is some risk because there are some there's still lots of guns floating around and active loyalist paramilitaries but i think we you know, we mustn't overstate you know we're, we're going to have a conversation about about this this issue it's absolutely it's front and center in irish politics um, and and in north and south at the moment as it has been for the last few years that will intensify over the next few years so i suspect by the time that we get to we get to a vote and there's a bit of a generational tilt as well a lot of people as i say even if they they may vote against it can acclimatize themselves to the reality that the a there will be a referendum and b if that referendum brings about irish unity that it's not the end of the world that there are good opportunities here and and, and if there are proper safeguards for their identity what are they angry about i'm sure that that will be true probably for even for the majority of northern ireland protestants right that that, that they'll have to accept it but but uh, i still wonder about that minority i mean the one thing that makes me think maybe it's not such a big problem is that you know there'll be no reversing it i mean clearly if there's a referendum that that, that votes for, for unity and it, there's no way that is it, it, it is inconceivable that that referendum would be ignored so so in a sense they'll be fighting for something that can't be achieved which is never a great position to be in but you know we do know that the protestant tradition in in northern ireland is very very strong very defiant very defensive very concerned very worried and you know i i i just wonder the extent to which the rest of ireland will want to take on a problem that will be expressed in violence it's also increasingly diverse and i think that's 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 a kind of i think going to be an important dynamic that there will be there will be you know, lots of people that I mean, you know, you look at a lot of the institutions of of, of kind of you know Protestant unionist loyalist identity. You know, a lot of them are in decline. Membership of the Orange Order, um, you know, being being be a, be a good a good example. And and you know, I think I think a lot of, as I say, a lot of people make a pragmatic calculation that economically they'll just be so much better off being part of a much more dynamic economy than they are in Northern Ireland, which is, you know, which is still reliant on a, a big annual subvention from the British state, uh, which, you know, which d- does not function really economically very well at all. And clearly politically doesn't uh, function brilliantly either. Um, so, so the, you know, there are a lot of people I think will make a pragmatic calculation about this. There'll, there'll be, there'll, of course, will be irreconcilables. I think it's difficult to quantify how many, and I think it's difficult to pull out of that what is, what is bluster and, as I say, muttering darkly, and what is actual, real, genuine intent? Because, as you say, you know, if, if this vote goes through, it will be recognised internationally. It will be recognised by the Irish government, by the British government, and it is full and final. And, and there is nothing to kind of mount a campaign to achieve. And as you say, you know, it's, it's a very strange position to be in to to be prepared to to what to attack somebody, to kill somebody, to go to jail for a cause you cannot possibly win. There's, there's going to be no change. Let, let me just put finally a question to you about nationalism. Uh, you know, you, you've described the Irish case, uh, you know, in terms of freeing itself from oppression. And you know, many people will recognise what you're saying and, and can see that. Uh, but there is also another aspect of nationalism where people say they are different when there is more maybe in humanity that unites them than divides them. Uh, nationalism is by its nature an intolerant uh, creed that leads to often to political violence, whether it's in, in Europe or anywhere else. Uh, and, and, 
you know, th- th- there is that aspect of the Irish struggle that is, you know, illiberal. Uh, what do you say to that? I mean, yes, you know, we, we, we're in the context of, you know, of, of a kind of, you know, an 800-year colonial situation where, where, of course, wrong is done on all sides. But, but you know, at the, at the heart of this is, is as ever, whether whether this be Africa or, or you know, or Ireland, is, is it's a struggle for national self-determination, which has taken many forms over the last couple of hundred years in Ireland. It's taken militant form. It's taken constitutional form. You know, we've, we've had the Irish Parliamentary Party holding the balance of power in the House of Commons for, for a very, very long period in the late Victorian era and what have you. But but if, 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 if you, you know, it, it waxes and wanes. We get we get attempts at parliamentary and constitutional reform. And when those don't seem to work or deliver, well, then we get, we get we get militarism and then, and then you know, you get different cycles of all of this. But, but you know, ultimately, you know, you take an aerial photograph of Ireland, it tells it, it tells the story um, that, that this is this is you know this this is a natural geographical unit, um, and and that and that you know Northern Ireland is you know is left in this in this slightly invidious position as, as a bit of a bolt on to, to to the British state you know with the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and and you know as I say the Good Friday Agreement you know puts Northern Ireland in in, in, in a, on a kind of on a, on a very different footing from the rest of Britain. I can see all that, but what, I, what I'm trying to get at is when you say, yeah, this is national self-determination, what I'm trying to put to you is that the experience of Europe, let's say, since the Second World War, is that giving up national sovereignty and pooling it in the European Union has led to decades of peace and prosperity. It's been an extremely successful political experiment, I and mean, Britain's now out of it, but nonetheless, there are tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Europeans who've benefited from this, and uh, that what you're talking about is going in a different direction. It's going back to uh, national units, national sovereignty, creating difference where uh, people uh, in Europe are trying to create uh, bonds and, and community. Uh, you know, do, you, do you think there's anything in that argument? Not really, no, because, I mean, you know, across across Irish politics, you know, that there is huge um support for the for the european union you know tr- traditionally perhaps republicans were a bit more truculent about this their, their analysis was a bit different but they you know they, they've changed radically in the last 20 years because of course the european union um, has been very good um to ireland all parts of ireland all communities in ireland i mean enormous amounts of money gone into northern ireland 600 million euro a year to a place with a population of 1.9 million people which is which is extraordinary really and of course southern ireland has benefited enormously from it and from access to the single market as well so so you know what you get with with i think particularly with irish nationalism is is that it's it's a progressive nationalism it's a nationalism that 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 is not going to it's not chauvinistic in 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 that respect it's not it's not popular you know, it tends to be, you know, left of centre, left liberal. Um, you know, so, so a bit like Scottish nationalism is, is very much of a similar character, I think. You know, the, I mean, the, 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 you know, the big issue that the, the SNP has, you know, got caught up about in the last year is, is the, you know, the rights for, for, for transsexual people. So that's an unusual thing for perhaps a nationalist party to, to, to kind of kind of obsess itself about. So there can be, I think, a progressive nationalism. And I think this is very much the, the, the kind of character of, of where Irish nationalism finds itself. Um, and as I say, you know, the, the arguments that might be about, um, you know, faith and flag for some people, you know, these days it's more about, you know, how can you make, uh, you know, the island of Ireland a really successful um, economic um, economic place that, that benefits that benefits everybody. Really, that's where I think the centre of gravity of the political debate is. 
What would you say, just finally then on this, to those uh, living in Scotland, for example, who find Scottish nationalism to be incredibly intolerant and aggressive and difficult and divisive, and that, you know, fear it's creating, you know, real fissures in their society and community? I think, I mean, you know, Scottish politics has often been, you know, very, very difficult, often, you know, labour machine politics, um, you know, kind of ran the place before before the, the kind of advent of the SNP. Uh, but, you know, it's not, you know, this is not, um, you know, I don't, I don't think this is, this, is, this is a kind of nationalism either in Scotland or in Ireland, which which is, you know, which is, you know, founded around hostility or, or, or kind of right-wing populism or, or, or a very kind of ossified sense of the state and its history. I think these tend to be very forward-looking um, political movements. Um, and I think I think that, you know, they can accommodate themselves in the Irish context very much to, to, to you know, to life in the European Union. And what's interesting, of course, is, is that what comes next in terms of East-West relationships in this context? How, how does a unified Irish Island deal with Britain, and, and you know, my, my my point is some of this some of this goes with a whimper, really. That we end up at this point where I believe there will be um, a United Ireland, and that'll be kind of fine. But but relations between Britain and Ireland, I think, will probably be better than they've ever been in this very tortuous eight hundred year period. You know, there's an awful lot of people from an Irish background that live in Britain. More more people probably with, with an Irish grandparent or great grandparent living in Britain than on the entire island of Ireland. Um, you know, so, so 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 I think relations will will have a chance to grow and develop, and, and you know, in, in perhaps twenty, thirty years time, hopefully people will look back at all this all this tortuous period that, that, that you know, that particularly anybody with memories of the troubles, and just think, God, what was all that about? That, you know, that would be, that would be my hope. Kevin Marr, thank you very much for talking us through it.